Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Five, four, three, two, one. Cue music. This is Movies First with Alex First and Chris Coleman. Hello and welcome to Movies First, the greatest leap forward in entertainment since a South Korean cinema operator decided that the sound of music was too long and so he could fit more screenings into his cinema in the day, he cut all the songs out. My name is Chris Coleman. Alex, first greetings oh, to you. Oh, come on, you've made that up, Christopher. I cannot believe anybody would do that. Surely it's a musical. I have had this story relayed to me on multiple occasions, but I've never been able to pin it down. I'm happy to say, until shown otherwise, that it's true. Good. OK, I'll, I'll go with that too. Ghostbusters, they have redone. Did they need to do it, Chris? 1984, what was wrong with that one? Uh, I, 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 can I say, I actually dug out the original of Ghostbusters and watched it during the week before going and seeing the new one last night. And while there is a great deal of sentimentality for me, it is a real touchstone of my teenage years. Mm-hmm. As a film, it's actually not, and I'm going to get crucified wow. saying this. Hang on. It's not. You watch your tongue, sir. <laughs> this is one of my favourite movies growing up. What's going on? It's great fun to watch, Alex. Don't get me wrong. The original Ghostbusters, great fun to watch but it's actually not that good. Oh, hey, come on. I have really fond memories. I haven't seen it for many years, mind you, of that kooky original Ivan Reitman-directed movie. Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, Harold Ramis, unfortunately no longer with us, Ernie Hudson, Sigourney Weaver. I was really seriously concerned entering the cinema for this reboot. In short, I was worried my fond memories may be tarnished. Now, you've seen it in close proximity, the two Ghostbusters. Do you reckon the new one stacks up, do you? I think the new one stacks up. Now, don't get me wrong. When I say the first one isn't that good, it was it was enjoyable. It was a great pop culture moment in the mid-1980s. I think I saw it three times at the cinema. I have it on Blu-ray. I, I pull it out and watch it occasionally. It's great fun, okay? Yes. But it's not... And the special effects for the time, for their day, were groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. 84, 94, uh, 2004, 32 years have gone by. So effects obviously have improved, there's no question about that, but a lot of the effects in Ghostbusters, this new version with four women in the lead, are very much based upon the illusions that were created first up 30-odd years ago. Oh, indeed, and I know that there are people who have complained a lot about this new version of the Ghostbusters. I have a theory, Alex. I'll go with this before you review. Sure. I think a lot of people are annoyed because Ghostbusters, like you, like me, and don't get me wrong, it is one of my favourite movies, okay? Uh But because this is the new Ghostbusters, there's no real homage to the original Ghostbusters in their roles in this. There are people who are saying, they're not my Ghostbusters, therefore it's bad. I reckon a lot of the people who are saying it's bad haven't even seen it. I went and saw it. I really enjoyed it. I had fun. But you can tell, you can talk more and then we'll discuss. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's be candid. There are some very neat cameos there by some of the people in the original. So that was the homage, as you so rightly put it. But 
let's let's go to the fact that Ivan Reitman does not direct this one. He's produced it along with Amy Pascal. Paul Feig, who did Bridesmaids, Spy, which was a good film, The Heat, so he's got good pedigree. He reckons that funny people fighting the paranormal is still the greatest idea ever. Now, surely he's promoting the movie by saying that, but instead of men, as you say, we've got women doing the ghost busting, four of them who bumble their way through as best they can with the help of a totally incompetent, good-looking male secretary taken on purely for beefcake value. Nothing wrong with that if you're a bloke, yeah? No, and that's the thing. This is so much role reversal. Yes, absolutely. In fact, lately, Chris, we've got a lot of movies where women predominate. Now, we could say it's high time because I, I was reading somewhere, and we'll come up to this relatively soon, when we're going to talk about our spy film today, our, our kind of traitor, that's directed by a woman. And apparently 3% of spy movies are directed by women. 3%? Yeah, exactly. That many? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm surprised that well, it's that high. I thought it was, it was a purely male-dominated field. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's what I thought. Well, I just, I just hope that what we've been... And we've been speaking about this in, in recent times. Again, last week there was a, a movie about, about the, the wedding, you know, the two guys looking on the internet for dates for the... The, the wedding that, that their sister was going to have in Hawaii. That, again, was dominated by women overcoming silly, silly men. So there's another example where the women come out on top. So that's just two that I can think of straight off the top. When you go back to Thelma and Louise, I mean, that was a standalone movie very much based around two women. There have been a number of examples over the years, but I'm seeing a bit of a trend here. I hope it's a trend that lasts because it goes back to... Well, the basis of mankind, 50% each, or roughly thereof. And so why can't women be the dominant force in movies? I'll tell you why. There's only one reason why potentially not. It's got to do with money. The studios put money into movies that make money for them. And if something like Ghostbusters works with women in the lead role, they'll do more of it. If Ghostbusters tanks, they may have second thoughts. Have we had any early box office figures for the 2016 edition of Ghostbusters? I, I, I was looking. I couldn't find any. I was just wondering whether you had any. No, yet. not yet. Because, Well, let's put it this way. The Australian figures will come out on Monday, right? So we're, we're a day away from that. We're recording this on a Sunday. So we'll know more there. I haven't looked at the States. You might care to do... Have you checked on the sort of IMDb site? I, I have had a look and I can't see anything yet. But again, this has opened... It's basically global opening... Yeah. On the same day. So as we record this, it still hasn't had its full opening weekend. No, exactly. So this is what you have to count on. Upon. Look, there's been so much negative publicity about it. it apparently, it, it's got to do with the fact that there was leaks. Remember, there were email leaks. And the Ghostbusters that we're seeing now, the rebooted Ghostbusters, wasn't what was intended. Apparently, men were going to take the lead roles. But once that leaked... The studio wasn't going to go ahead with it and they changed their tune and that's how the women came to be. That's what somebody told me. So, you know... It's also had a problem too in that the, the first trailer they released for it, and you might remember it came out with a great flurry of publicity yes. on YouTube, what, about six months ago, maybe five months mm -hmm. ago? It was awful. It really didn't portray what you've got in this film in a positive light. Fair, fair and reasonable. Well, Feig, by the way, who's the director, teamed with Katie Dippold, who was involved in The Heat, to co-write the screenplay. And it's set in the here and now. The new Ghostbusters have dedicated their lives to scientifically proving that apparitions exist. 
But, of course, they're considered unhinged because there's no physical proof. And all that changes when they witness for themselves a spirit that emerges from a previously bolted door in an old house and slimes one of them. Green slime, in case you're wondering. Suddenly, New York City is being overrun by these outrageous spectres, a fact that the mayor can only keep quiet for so long. So let's go to the actual cast. Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig are the two big names. McCarthy, paranormal expert, dedicating her life to studying ghosts. And she's always been a believer, given up a lot for those views that she holds, but refusing to let the non-believers grind her down. She's had a falling out with Kristen Wiig, with whom she was friends at high school. Wiig believed in ghosts as a child. Eventually, the pair wrote a book on the subject together. But McCarthy sort of, while she continued down that path, Wig saw her physics career grow and she realised that her fascination with the paranormal was actually holding that back, the physics career. It was hurting her credibility. So she determined to put that old life behind her and forge a new narrative as a legitimate scientist. And she's now up for academic tenure. That's the Kristen Wig character. She does everything she can to distance herself from what she now acknowledges was mumbo-jumbo. That is until her past literally comes back to haunt her. So we've got Kate McKinnon. I don't, I, I don't think I'd seen Kate McKinnon before. She's the engineer, the, the epitome of a mad scientist. She can take... I've seen her in a couple of TV shows, but uh, like Saturday Night Live right. uh, and, and a couple of other bit parts, but there's nothing she's done that had stuck in my mind before this. Yeah, well, if I'd seen her, then... I, dare I say she was memorably forgettable because I can't recall having seen her. But anyway, she takes the concepts that McCarthy and Wig come up with and builds the physical equipment to fight these ghouls. And she's been a bit of an oddball. She thinks outside the box, doesn't follow the social norms, likes putting stuff together. She, she likes inventing things. She doesn't judge others, but she gets a thrill out of pushing uptight people's buttons, notably Kristen Wiggs. And, and finally, Leslie Jones. She joins the group as the newcomer who knows the ins and outs of New York City. She used to work with the Metropolitan Transportation Authority where she saw a ghost for herself. And knowledge of the streets and byways will be one of the keys to solving where the apparitions are at any given time and what's happening to Manhattan. And finally, there's the business's dim-witted personal assistant, good-natured, sweet, who has gotten by on his looks alone. And he's clearly... A oh, few apples shy of a barrel. Who better to play that role, take the mickey out of himself, than Chris Hemsworth? Have you ever seen Chris Hemsworth do comedy? And I mean full-on comedy. I know that as Thor, he gets the odd witty line. But have you ever seen him do full-on comedy before? I can't recall, but he's... Look, the Hemsworth boys are very practical. They don't mind taking the mickey. If you've had a look at some of their social media comments, etc., they're, they're taking the P1SS all the time, and I love that. I, and that's quintessential Aussie, is it not? It is. Can I bring my cat to work? You, yes, exactly. <laughs> Lovely. Really. Now, OK, I'm going to tell you, I reckon the remake is not as good as the original. I really... Look, it's not a complete flop either. The mm. laughs did come, but... That I didn't find that there were as many as I wanted them there to be, and a number of the scenes fell flat for mine. I thought the setup was palatable enough, the way the Ghostbusters were formed, the backstories for each of them. In fact, I really enjoyed that. But then the second half in particular really dragged for me. It's a really long film. It's 116 minutes. 90 minutes would have been plenty. It's rated PG in Australia, by the way. The, the, the first 20 minutes, I think there's too much 
story, not enough go for really? it. Really? See, I, I disagree with that. I actually really liked the first 20 minutes. I, I loved the setup. But I thought after that, once they'd established everything and they, they'd got together as a group, then it, I mean, the, the crescendo here, without giving too much of it away, is that you've got a, you've got a face-off in New York City. I mean, fundamentally, uh, you've got this grand finale where th there's ghosts everywhere. and Look, it's the Ghostbusters formula. You're going to have the Ghostbusters fighting ghosts yeah. in big and, numbers in New York And City. that's fine. And I don't have a problem with that. But there was a, a whole portion for the best part of 45 minutes leading up to it that I thought could have been cut down. That's the bit that I think could have been saved for maybe a, a, a Blu-ray or DVD release. See, I'll go the other way. I think in the first 20 minutes there was too much time spent devoted to the backstory mm. of of, uh, of Kristen Wiig's character and Melissa McCarthy's character. Uh, and but, but, but sorry, also... let me argue with you. Ultimately, what that's what make, makes you invest in the characters because of what you know about them. But I, I don't know whether we needed all of that because it took us longer to get to... Well, it took us longer to bring in uh, the Chris Hemsworth's character. It took us. It took longer to to get down to what Kate McKinnon's character was all about. And I think we needed more of her. Uh, and it took, again, longer for us to get Leslie Jones in. I just thought it could have used a little bit more momentum at the start. OK, well, what about Kate McKinnon's character? Did you like her character or not? Uh, it was a toss-up for me on the way out whether it was her or Chris Hemsworth who stole the show. OK, so I found her a bit too flighty for my liking. She may be a first-rate fabricator of ghost-busting equipment, but a smooth conversationalist she isn't. I know that's the character she played. I, I, I liked McCarthy and Wig bouncing off each other. I thought that was effective. And I thought Leslie Jones seemed quite comfortable in her own skin. And I, I really loved the running gag of Chris Hemsworth playing this conceited meathead. He, he certainly didn't appear concerned at all about holding himself up to ridicule. In fact, he seemed to relish it, as far as I'm concerned. So I, I didn't think it was bad casting. I, look, the ghosts, I thought they were in keeping, as I said, with the menagerie I said a bit earlier, to which we were first introduced back in 84. If you cut out the best part of half an hour, Ghostbusters would have been a far better and more engaging instrument, as far as I'm concerned. Mind you, I still question whether we really need a reboot. Yeah, I don't know whether we needed to reboot. The, I, I, I read afterwards a suggestion from someone that what would have been better would have been uh, if they'd had, uh, say, two or three of the original Ghostbusters, bearing in mind Harold Ramis is no longer with yes. us. But if, they'd, if we'd had two or three of the original Ghostbusters, at some stage mentor the the new breed, if you like. So to, to just establish that continuity, it's the Star Wars theory. You look at how Star Wars has yes. created a, a dynasty of movies and with the reboot into Chapter 7 now, they still had Han Solo, Princess Leia, C-3PO. We saw a tiny bit of Luke Skywalker as well. Star Wars Episode 7 has been far better received than Star Wars Episodes 1, 2 and 3, yeah? Oh, well, they, they were terrible. Yeah, because you've got, but again, you've got the continuity of characters. They could have taken a lesson here, and they haven't done that. Having said that, for mine, uh, I thought as a comedy, I thought the comedic delivery was great. Yeah. I really, uh, I, I thought, like you, the, the 45 minutes or so of, of action scene could easily have been condensed down by, for mine, probably 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, the special effects were very good. I didn't see it in a 3D cinema. I don't know whether yeah, you saw I it did. in 2D and or 3D. 3D works really well. I'm really well. Yeah. Some things come out at you, which is great. And you know, it, it's an appropriate movie for 3D. OK, you give me your score out of 10 first. Can I cheat a little bit? Can I say, as a comedy, if we were going to judge this purely as a comedy out of ten, I would give it a good seven and a half out right, of ten. Now, now rate it as a movie. 
as a movie, I'm going to drop it down to probably a six. Yes, and I'm giving it a six out of ten. There we go. Ghostbusters 2016. A couple of things, uh, and we haven't... We're trying not to give too much away, but if you are a movie trivia watcher, you will see the three surviving original Ghostbusters in the movie at some stage. You will also see, and I don't know whether you spotted it, Alex, it was very clever. You blink and you miss it very early in the movie. There was a small tribute piece to Harold Ramis as well. Yes, indeed, I did notice it. But you have to watch very, very closely, and I think I can say just outside the door to Kristen Wiig's office... Mm Mm-hmm. And leave it at that. Good man, good. Yes, yeah. we don't want to spoil um, the surprise. Uh, yeah, and Sigourney Weaver does eventually turn up and watch the credits right through to the very, very end. Don't leave the cinema mm, Well, I mean, it, it basically points to a sequel, doesn't it? We, which we will get. Whether, whether we needed the reboot or not, we will get the sequel because I reckon they've invested a lot in this with the thought that, well, we can spend the money in Ghostbusters in 2016 uh, and we've got the stuff ready to roll for Ghostbusters two, four, whatever it winds up being called in 2018. Yes, indeed. So let's move to a spy thriller called Our Kind of Traitor, which is 108 minutes, rated MA in Australia. Rich and rewarding thriller, spy thrillers, featuring an all-star cast focusing on the Russian mafia and money laundering in the United Kingdom. British University lecturer Ewan McGregor and his lawyer wife Naomi Harris, who used to be a Bond girl, incidentally, are having their issues after being married for a decade or more. They, they take a break to Marrakesh. I'd love to have a break in Marrakesh, just a weekender, Chris. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, wasn't Crosby, Stills and Nash had the song on the Marrakesh Express? They did, yeah. Well, they take a break to try to reconnect, and that's where McGregor's befriended by a flamboyant, gregarious, charismatic Russian played by Stellan Skarsgård. And this Russian invites McGregor to a host of lavish parties where no expense seems to be spared, and also to play tennis. Unbeknown to McGregor, though, Skarsgård is actually a kingpin money launderer who wants to defect with his family to the UK. Before McGregor and his wife leave Morocco to head home, Skarsgård prevails upon his new mate to deliver some classified material to the British Secret Service, no less, via a USB drive. This is why you always have to be careful when you make friends on holidays, boys and girls. Thank you. Yes, I'm sitting down and listening, Dad. Naively, McGregor agrees, and before you know it, he and his wife become ensnared in this dangerous world of international espionage, of dirty politics, murder even. The man pulling the strings is one of my favourite actors, determined, poorly resourced MI6 agent played by Damien Lewis, who was in Homeland on television, with his own axe to grind. And you've got McGregor and Harris's perilous journey taking them through Paris, onto Bern and the French Alps. At stake, not only billions of dollars, but the safety of Skarsgård's family. And it's based upon the novel by probably the best-known spy writer, John le Carre, the mind behind Ticket Taylor, Soldier Spy. It's been written for the screen by Hossein Amini, who's done two excellent movies, Drive and The Two Faces of January. And Amini worked very closely with Lucare on the first couple of drafts. So Amini, sort of talking about their collaboration, says, I'd write and he'd give me notes. And one of the themes of Lucare's work is that Britain's almost declined as a world power, but we still have these British values that come from a time when Britain was on top of the world. And so it's got a moral responsibility. And as that power has waned, that morality has turned into something far more like compromise. So he's very interested in the impact of the decline of British power on the moral system, and that's what this film's all about. Directed by a woman, yes, indeed. The, one of the 3%, as I just mentioned earlier, 
of spy films directed by a female of the species. Emmy nominee Susanna White was responsible for Nanny McPhee and the Big Bang. Big Bang. And Damien Lewis, well, he's right when he says this is as much a character piece as it is a suspenseful thriller. It's not a whodunit. It's more of a can-they-do-it. So when you think about Le Carre's characters, long been ingrained in the public imagination as the crumpled, cynical counterparts to the polished dash of James Bond. So for the filmmakers, the job at hand was to craft a feature to fit into the Le Carre canon and also to stand out within it. So you can imagine, like a Bond movie, our kind of trader features a number of the exotic locales I've already mentioned. To me, though, it feels far more real than a Bond film, and I think that's what Le Carre does. Skarsgård's one of the standouts as a man full of bravado but on edge about his family's future. Look at me performance, purporting to show strength but carrying vulnerability by virtue of his family's well-being. Of course, the family's imperiled. Damien Lewis, equally impressive as the Englishman with strong moral fibre who goes outside the system to do what he feels is right. And he's the proper English gentleman, immaculately spoken and turned out. Not afraid, though, to upset the establishment. And the two leads, McGregor and Harris, well, they play their parts too as ordinary citizens caught up in extraordinary events and going far beyond their call of duty. Looks and feels good, I reckon, our kind of trader from the get-go, tension filled throughout. And while you'll probably be able to pick a number of supposed twists, one in particular almost being a spy cliché, the overall offering, I reckon, has strength and heart. And it's a really enjoyable ride that won't disappoint aficionados of the genre. That is our kind of traitor. Well, let me throw a few things at you at this point. John le Carre, I think it's 11th. This is his 11th book that's been translated into either a telly movie or a, a movie for the big screen. Mm -hmm. And there's quite a range in there. There's The Tailor of Panama, The Russia House, The Little Drummer Girl, uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which is a 60s classic, one of my favourite 60s movies of all time, starring Richard Burton. Uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy was a TV miniseries and a movie, uh, a miniseries back in the 70s, and a, and a, a really gritty drama in, uh, what, about 2010, 2011. Uh, and, and one that's probably went a bit under the radar was The Constant Gardener about 10 years ago. So bearing that in mind, where does it fit in compared to other John le Carre books that have been turned into movies? It, it fares really well. It does extremely well because it's got the tradition behind it, but it's also got a few, few surprises, which I don't want to spoil. Okay, I won't get you to give, give anything away. I will say at the cinema I went to last night, they had a screening of it and the title on the marquee read Our Own Kind of Traitor, so someone obviously not a fan of John le Carre there. That notwithstanding, let's give it a score. Seven and a half out of ten. Okay, so we're jumping up a bit for Our Kind of Traitor. You're listening to Movies First with Chris Coleman and Alex First. We're still to come with a live musical for this week, but right now we're moving into a... Well, it's not quite a movie that is a musical, but it's certainly a very musical movie. It's called Sing Street. Yes, indeed, 105 minutes, rated M in Australia. Rites of passage story, strong romantic elements and a film built on the musical foundations of 1980s British bands, focusing on the perils and wonders of teenage life. New actor, Ferdia Walsh-Pilo is his name, plays Connor, one of three children. It's an Irish movie. One of three children living in a toxic environment, just 15 years of age, he's got a brother, six years his senior, and a sister. Their father's lost his job, forever fighting with their mother, who's having an affair. So a marriage breakdown seems inevitable. But, of course, divorce was not allowed in Ireland at that time. 
with money tight, Connor, who's this intelligent, thoughtful lad, is forced to change schools. He goes from a posh private institution to a rough and tumble environment where he's immediately set upon. He's bullied. We, they try to bully him. And Connor decides to form a band to attract the interest of a very pretty girl. Yeah, that always works it, well for teenagers. Yeah, it does. It does. Rafina is her name, played by Lucy Boynton. Who was in Miss- Did you ever try that when you were a teenager? You know, start a band, try to impress the chicks? Yeah, well, unfortunately, I was still learning guitar, I reckon, when I got out of school. So never really happened for me. But the people who were popular did have a guitar and could sing. That was that was not me, unfortunately. I, I had the guitar, but I couldn't couldn't really pluck it. So I, I just accept that. Now, the origins of this movie, Sing Street, go back many years to writer-director John Carney's life as a teenager in 1980s Dublin. And John Carney was the guy who brought us Once and Begin Again, two very, very nice little movies. Now, he experienced growing up in the Irish capital by moving from private school to an inner-city comprehensive. It ultimately became the seed of an idea to create a musical film about that period in his life. The film's also a story about contrasts. The contrast of Ireland versus England, Dublin versus London, and the safety of a private education versus one in the state system. But most importantly for Carney, it was the contrast of this young teenage boy who thinks he's got problems, which are far outweighed by those of the girl he meets and ultimately falls for. And bear in mind, this was a time of recession and immigration. Even those who should have had money often didn't. They were forced to think a little bit differently in terms of, say, the clothes that they wore, how they expressed themselves, how they looked. So they held auditions for six months to look for the leads in Sing Street. And Ferdia Walsh Pirlo had come from a musical family with a background in opera and Irish folk music, a rather unusual combination. He'd been a boy soprano. He toured the Magic Flute with the Opera Theatre Company and he was also classically trained on piano. So great choice. And despite the dark undertones... The take-home message from this movie, Sing Street, is upbeat. Namely, if you want it badly enough, you can overcome any obstacle. Whether or not that's true, Chris, central character is driven and passionate in terms of what he wants to achieve, and he goes for it. He may be only young, but he deals with roadblocks in a very mature way. So Connor and Rafina, on whom he has designs, are extremely likeable as characters, as is Connor's older brother, who provides invaluable coaching and life lessons for Connor. His gruff exterior belies a real sense of care. And at one point in the movie, he actually says he's paved the way for his younger bro, which I really believe he has done. I should say that there's a meant to be a one-year age gap between Connor and Rafina. So the 15-year-old is meant to have designs on a 16-year-old. Well, that didn't quite ring true when it came to the actors who filled the roles. As good as they both were, and they really were, I enjoyed both performances, Walsh Pirlo looked like this fresh-faced youngster. Boynton, beautiful though she is, looks and actually is, because I checked on it, many years older. And she's absolutely gorgeous, no no question. But as I say, he looks like he hasn't yet shaved, you know, so it's kind of, uh, I mean, you know, it's make-believe. Nevertheless, I... I because I was really enjoying what I was seeing, I went with the flow. I loved the music. It's a great soundtrack that Connor and his band created. It's uh, it's well worth getting. And I, I think when you leave the cinema, you'll probably want to buy the DVD. So Sing Street, feel-good entertainment. It could have been far more sinister, but Carney has this lightness of touch. So just as another moment of despair arises, he finds a way through it. And I think that works really well. It's, it's going to do particularly well. I, I think Sing Street's a really nice movie. 
before you give us a score, here are just some of the artists who appear on the soundtrack for it. It's it's a very wide range, and if you're feeling nostalgic for the, if you're not feeling nostalgic for the '80s after this list, there is something wrong with you. Motorhead, Duran Duran, The Clash, Flash in the Pan, The Jam, The Cure, Hall and Oates, Joe Jackson, uh, and more uh, on the on the soundtrack to uh, Sing Street. It just sounds like an absolute ripper. Alex, what's the score? Seven to seven and a half out of ten. Excellent. Sing Street, uh, the third and final movie on Movies First this week as we now move to the world of live theatre. Now, this is one that many people may have seen in the past, but it's undergone uh, a bit of a rejig for its latest incarnation. Tell us about Menopause, the musical Women on Fire. Yes, it's a bit of a metamorphosis for menopause. Well, Donna Lee is a superstar, absolute revelation and sensation in this reworked story of four women who meet at a lingerie sale and discover they've got plenty in common. Not only does she have this great singing voice and impeccable comic timing, talk about comedians when it comes to Ghostbusters, but her ability to connect with an audience second to none. These facial expressions, the body movements that she has are priceless. She plays a dubbo housewife who's stopping off to have bathroom breaks as often as most of us have hot dinners. As good as the other cast members are, Lee, to me, was the clear standout. Diminutive, but oh so accomplished at nailing her character's vulnerabilities. Menopause, the musical Women on Fire, an offshoot of the original Menopause, the musical, which debuted in Melbourne in 2005, is jam-packed with clever rewording of familiar hit songs from the baby boomer era. We're talking about many more than 20 songs. I think it's 29 in 90 minutes without interval. Songs like I Heard It Through the Grapevine, The Great Pretender, Burn Baby Burn, Fever, We Are Family. That's just some of the numbers. <laughs> Great stuff. And the words, as I say, have been changed as is appropriate to menopausal women. Four stars among six in the cast compare medication and beauty treatments. They discuss a lack of sex. They consider the merits of intimate apparel and reflect upon insomnia. Not surprisingly, hot flushes feature prominently as do incontinence, memory loss and night sweats. All very real issues, Chris. We must not make light of them. No, we must not, and that's why I'm saying nothing. Yes, I, I, your, your silence is golden, but naturally it's treated with hilarity and warmth. Otherwise, I think we'd be sobbing into our bickies. Some of the material is rib-tickling funny, although I felt that the show did get off to a, a rather disappointing start. It actually felt a tad amateurish or forced, when that first number came along and my wife and I looked at each other and I, I thought we were sort of seeing a community theatre. That's probably being a little bit too harsh. But it then kicked into gear. It really did. It, it, it picked up and it took us along for the ride. So there's no doubt, stick with it. But I was surprised by the opening number, shall we say, and I suppose even the, the, the acting didn't seem real to me, at least just for the, the, the very beginning. The department store setting is created by depicting a lift centre stage around which you just have to picture this, prominent purple and orange floral print wallpaper. Hmm. Okay. Just the, just the ticket. So Purple and orange, they always go so oh, well Oh, don't they? Don't they? Uh, it's not mauve. It's a deeper purple than that, but it's not a dark purple either. And there's props like... There's, when you first enter the theatre, there's a pyramid-shaped rack of torso mannequins. So no heads and no legs, right? Complete with knickers and bras on each of... I think there's six of them. And they that's just... These props 
this is the first of them, that represent the different floors where the women meet and mingle. So that, that could be the beauty parlour or the cafe or when trying on the latest red teddy. Indeed. The highly accomplished Caroline Gilmer is prominent throughout, doesn't put a foot wrong. I was also really impressed by Megan Shapcott, who shines when she becomes the focus of attention. She's a real comic find, this one. And Jackie Love, a lot of people would know that name. She plays the soapy star in this one. Choreography and direction is from Tony Bartuccio. You might remember he's, there was the Tony Bartuccio dances on Channel 9. While you're on the subject of 80s touchstones, gee, we've had a lot of that this week. Yes, indeed. And so you've got an hour and a half, menopause the musical, women on fire. It had my wife laughing uproariously at times. I was a tad less effusive, but still found much to smile about, especially when Donna Lee had us in the palm of her hands, which she did frequently. It's on at the Athenaeum Theatre in Melbourne until the 6th of August. Now, this has already had a season in Brisbane. I'm not aware of it going anywhere else at the moment, but keep your eyes peeled because if it's, uh, if it's gone Brisbane, Melbourne, the odds are it will continue somewhere down the track. Indeed. So I'm going to give it a 7 to 7.5 out of 10. There we go. Menopause, the musical, the, the, the new version thereof, called, uh, subtitled Women on Fire, on at the Athenaeum in Melbourne for the next few weeks. And, Alex, it's been a fun week on Movies First this week. It has indeed, and I love it when you've seen a movie and we disagree. We don't have to agree. Anybody can be a critic, and they've got every right to be, but uh, at least we're having a bit of fun talking about it. Indeed we are. We have another bonus edition of Movies First coming out in a couple of days' time because there's so many things that have come out, and I was looking at what's cu- what is coming out. We have a lot of work to do over the next few months, my friend. It's going to be fun. We'll catch up with you next time. You've been listening to Movies First with Alex First and Chris Coleman. Subscribe to the full podcast at Audioboom, Stitcher and iTunes or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.